So I want to welcome you all to the first installment of what is likely to be a recurring segment in our time together, in which I call, uh, Zach Ruins My Favorite Parts of Christianity. <laughs> and I'm going to be honest with you, I'm really surprised it took me this long. I have a bit of a reputation for this sort of thing. One time I was uh, talking with um, my previous church's preschool director and casually mentioned that her coloring pages for Noah's Ark should probably include some floating bloated corpses and she uh, never forgave me for that, for ruining that, that story for her and forever putting that mental image in her head. So it's not that I dislike our religious traditions or the images of the ways that we talk about things. I just think that the truth is more interesting and messy. And I like things that are messy and difficult. Um, I was, <laughs> I said that I like messy and difficult things and then looked at my children. <laughs> I love you both very much for all of your messy difficultness. So I guess what I'm trying to say today is that I don't think that Matthew is all that good at understanding prophecies. Here you go, Theo. You can take that. And I think he kind of misses the point of the Isaiah text, like entirely misses the point of the Isaiah text. But before I ruin Christmas for you, let's take a, a, a walk backwards a little bit and look at that Isaiah text again. Actually, can one of you flip the slide back to the Isaiah passage? Thank you. The first thing those of you with keen eyes who are listening closely probably noticed is that it does not say that a virgin will give birth, does it? It doesn't. In the Isaiah text, it says that a young woman is with child. So Isaiah is a prophet. He's, he's one of those rare prophets who is able to speak difficult truths to kings and those in power, but yet the kings let him in. Most of the times, the prophets say difficult things to people in power, and then they have to run for their lives. But the kings of Judah at this time were good kings, kings like Ahaz and Hezekiah. They were good, and they listened to him, and they invited him in to let them know what they were doing wrong. So this is about 700 years before Jesus, um, and we learn in the previous chapter that Judah's enemy, the Aramites, which is fine if you don't remember that for the rest of your life, the Aramites, Judah's enemy, had formed an alliance with Israel against Judah. Now, surely you know the name Israel. Um, and you're thinking to yourself, I thought Jerusalem was Israel. Well, by this point, there had been a civil war and they'd split Israel to the north, Judah to the south, both of them claiming ancestral heritage to Abraham, kind of siblings in faith and in peoplehood and in traditions and religion and all of that. Fellow children of Abraham, Israel, the northern ten tribes of Israel forged an alliance with their own enemy to destroy Judah, to plunder Jerusalem, to destroy the temple. Can you imagine the very people that you thought were on your side, your own flesh and blood, those who worship the same God, conspiring to take you down? So King Ahaz is lost. 
He doesn't know what to do. He's considering forging an unholy alliance with the people around him, thinking to himself, what am I going to have to sacrifice of my own values in order to get, gain the power of the Philistines or the Egyptians or someone else who can come and help me, protect me against my own siblings? Can you blame the guy? <laughs> I think it's totally normal to think about compromising your own values when the adversaries are closing in on you. But Isaiah comes to him and assures him that this is not going to be a problem for very long. That he doesn't need anyone else. All he needs is God. He doesn't need the Egyptians or anyone else. He just needs to trust and believe that God is actually in charge. And that if he maintains his focus on God, he will be saved. So then he says to an uncertain Ahaz, hey, you need proof? Name it. Any test you have, go ahead, name it. And Ahaz goes, no, nah, I'm not going to test the Lord my God, which sounds pious, but I think is probably just afraid. He's afraid that if that sign is confirmed, then he's going to have to believe it and he's going to have to step out in faith and do this impossible thing. So Isaiah says, I don't care what you want. Here's a sign. You, here's my sign. Look, a young woman has conceived a child and she will name him Emmanuel. He's going to grow up in this land. He's going to eat honey and curds, which means things are going to be good. He's going to have food. He's going to have a life. There will be the next generation here in this land. The world is not about to end, Ahaz. And I'll tell you what, one step further. Before that child is able to learn what's right and wrong. So what's that? How, how old do you think a kid is when they understand when they're not supposed to do something? 25. 25. Oh. 30. I heard two. Charlie says three. That's about the age when they know they're doing something wrong and they like it, right? They know it's wrong, but they're having fun with you. So Isaiah is saying to Ahaz, before this child who is you know, in the womb right now is able to do that, those two kings that you're so scared of will be nothing but smoldering stumps. So don't go and compromise your values right now with the Egyptians or whoever. Because God is faithful. <sighs> so it turns out he was right. And three years later, the Assyrians destroyed all of Israel and Aram and made it all the way to the gates of Jerusalem before they were pushed back away. So he was right. That child, Emmanuel, was born and couldn't tell the difference between good and evil before uh, they were saved. So if this prophecy in Isaiah is not about a messianic virgin birth, but rather a very immediate sign to a frightened king that was fulfilled in three years, why are we talking about it now? Why is it in the New Testament? Why does Matthew misquote it here? I mean, the sort of simple, overly simplistic, don't tell my seminary professor's answer is that in the ancient world, a young unmarried woman was assumed to be a virgin, so linguistically the words are really connected. 
And so they can sometimes be used interchangeably. And so there's some ambiguity there. But we already have in the second century, there are texts in which Jewish rabbis and Christians are fighting about the usage of this word. Where the rabbis are saying, you're reading it wrong, Christians. It doesn't say virgin. It says young woman. So like second century. We've been doing this for thousands of years. So I don't want to belabor the point or take you down a rabbit hole of linguistics and ancient languages. Um, I mean, I absolutely do want to go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> don't get me wrong. This is what my degree is in. I love this stuff. If anybody wants to talk about uh, the messiness of ancient Greek into Hebrew and all of that, talk to me later. But for your sake, I won't belabor that right now because what I do want to say is that Matthew, in looking at this text, focused on the wrong part. He focused on the wrong word. He really wanted to draw meaning out of this young woman word, and he left Emmanuel on the table. Because if I'm looking at this text, I honestly, I don't care much about the sex life of the woman in question. I care about the child named Emmanuel, God with us, God in our midst, God in our time, God in this place, God in the shelters and the streets, God with the kings, God with the peasants, God behind closed doors and God out in the open for all to see. The God that is above and beyond all comprehension somehow is also with us. King Ahaz was about to be killed by the people who worshipped the same God as him. But Isaiah told him that God was somehow in that mess too. So in the messy in the violent and the often backstabbing world of politics and power, God was in that as well. And God was telling him, don't play dirty just because your opponent's playing dirty. Stay true because God is in this, because God is with you, Emmanuel. And to you, Joseph, you who are a righteous man, struggling with an impossible decision because you know full well that the law requires you to have your fiancé executed for infidelity. That's not just a suggestion. That's in the law. That is what you're supposed to do. But Joseph is not only a righteous man, but he's a man who has the compassionate spirit of God within him. And so he sought to quietly break off the engagement, to essentially break the law in the name of love and compassion. But the angel came to him and said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your child, to raise this child as if it were yours, because God is with you in this child. God is with God's whole people in this child. So Joseph took Mary and pretended for the whole world that the child was his, because he believed that God was with him. It's amazing how much we can endure and how much we can overcome when we truly know in our gut that God is with us. Setbacks and betrayals and disappointments and impossible odds become nothing but speed bumps 
when we know truly down deep within us that God is with us. And that kind of knowing, that deep, deep knowing that goes beyond our head and down into our very core, that doesn't come easily. I'm not sure you can will that into your core. I think you can believe in God but not trust in God pretty easily. But in order to get it from up here, down into your core, into your very being, I think you just have to do it enough times so that God can earn your trust. You just have to step out before you actually believe it enough times before it really sinks in. So friends, I look around this room and I see the faces of people who are up against impossible odds. Pretty much every single person in some kind of scenario, in some kind of situation, and the work and the life that God has brought you to is up against some kind of impossible odds. You are pushing back against colossal injustices. You're feeling the sting of betrayal. You're holding a flickering candle against the endless night. So because I'm not going to see you all on Christmas or all on New Year's, it's going to be a couple of weeks probably, I want you to take this with you throughout the rest of this year, the holiday season, and all that may or may not come Know this to be true in your core. Do not forsake your higher calling in the face of insurmountable odds. Because we worship the God of impossible things. And that God is still only getting started. So let us pray.